no preaching of the wrath of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the law of God. There's no mention of hell. It's just give your heart to Jesus. He'll make you happy. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I'm joined by an incredible guest. I'm very excited. He's an author, a speaker, a television host. He's most famously known to be an evangelist, and he is also the founder of Living Waters Ministry, and that is Ray Comfort. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Good Good of you to have me. Thank you. Now, I sort of mentioned prior to pressing record that I really wanted to sort of get you on to talk about your sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret. And there are so many things I'd love to talk to you about, but this particular sermon of yours has been very successful in striking the hearts of unbelievers as well as people who maybe already believe but need to sort of maybe change the way that they evangelize and present the gospel. Um, I've personally had two family members who have come to know Christ through this sermon. So before we sort of get into what the sermon is, the content, the subject matter, the theology, I'd love to hear from you um, what the catalyst was, what sort of initiated um, and, and led you to feel like you should sit down and write this particular sermon. Well, I was suffering from a terrible disease called evangelical frustration. Um, I noticed that our church was losing about 90% of its new converts. I noticed that much of the church was very lukewarm. And as I traveled, I found most churches were losing most of their converts. And it seemed to me that if you're fishing and 90% of the fish get out of your net, you've got to look at your net, see if, what the problem is. And so I was having these thoughts and I read a portion of sermon by Charles Spurgeon that blew me away. Friday afternoon or Thursday afternoon, I can't remember, it doesn't even matter. Um, this is what I read. What will you do when the law comes in terror? When the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave, when the eyes of God shall burn their way into your guilty soul, when the book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished, can you stand against an angry law in that day? I remember looking at it and thinking, whoa, that's a little different from God has a wonderful plan for your life. I thought, what is Spurgeon doing? He's using the law to bring the knowledge of sin, to make sinners tremble, to flee from wrath. So I tucked it in the back of my mind and went, I had I had to travel that weekend to speak. And I was this little church and I was in a manse, a church manse, and I was reading Galatians just before the sermon. And I read, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But I didn't read it as that. I subconsciously read it as, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring Israel to Christ. And I thought, it doesn't say that. It says, bring us to Christ. So I thought, I wonder if you can legitimately use that law, the Ten Commandments, to cause sinners to flee from wrath to the Savior. So I closed the Bible up, went to a local uh, hot pools. It was uh, the city of Hamner, or the town of Hamner in Christ, above Christchurch, New Zealand. Very, very cold day. And I got into this hot pond, hot pool, natural hot pond, and a guy sat next to me and I thought, okay, I won't tell him that Jesus fixed all my problems and filled the God-shaped vacuum in my heart. I'll use the law to bring the knowledge of sin. So I said to him, you know, if you had a Christian background, and he said, not really. And I said, well, let me tell you why I became a Christian. I realized that I'd sinned against God. That Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart, seventh commandment. I'd lied and stolen done things that are wrong and broken those commandments. And I realized on judgment, I was in big trouble and I ended up in hell. And that's why I needed a savior. 
preach Christ. That man stood to his feet. And I'll never forget it because it was that cold day and his body was steaming. He looked down at me and said, I've never heard that put so clearly in all my life. And it was like a light went on in his head and a light went on in my head. I thought, wow, he understood the gospel. I explained the disease so he would appreciate the cure. So I began looking at men like Wesley, Moody, Whitfield, uh, Luther, and others that, uh, that we esteem as great men of God in the past. And they said, always, they said, if you do not use the law to bring the knowledge of sin, you will fill the church with false converts. So it was what Jesus did in Mark 10, verse 17, what Paul did in Romans 2. So I began teaching it. And I thought, I'm going to get separated as a legalist. And the exact opposite happened. It was absolutely embraced. I was teaching it in Hawaii. Pastor sat in from California, called me in New Zealand afterwards and said, you've got to bring this teaching to the church of the U.S. Came to the U.S. in 89 with my family. Things were quiet for three years. Then I got a call from David Wilkerson, the famous preacher in New York. He flew me to New York, shared it with his church. Church, Another well-known minister flew me to San Jose, where I shared it with a thousand pastors. He videotaped it and shared those uh, that teaching to 30,000 pastors, which exploded the ministry. And then actor Kirk Cameron in the year 2001 heard the teaching. He listened to it twice, said it just rocked his world, he called me and he wanted to combine ministries. And he was America's heartthrob. And uh, our ministry just exploded from there, created a television program that's gone for eight seasons, uh, award-winning, and it's teaching the same principle, using it again and again. And our YouTube channel is now past 220 million views. And again and again, you'll see the Ten Commandments showing sinners they need God's mercy. And you think to yourself, man, this really works because it's based on scripture. So that's the whole thing in a nutshell. Yeah. And I think you mentioned, uh, you know, in your sermon, the word backslider, that a lot of people come and then they backslide. And that's something I've witnessed myself through my journey um, and through my sanctification. I once I was raised, sorry, in a Baptist church and most people that that went there and families, they stayed there for their whole lives. But when I was later in life going in my teen years, I went to a very prosperity gospel type church, a very Pentecostal. Australian Assembly of God sort of church. And I found that we would on a youth group get like hundreds of people coming in there on a Friday night. But then on church on a Sunday, there'd be maybe two of those youths that would be sitting their butts on those chairs. Um, and then that would fluctuate as well. Sometimes there'd be none. And it was really conflicting for me to try and understand how that can happen. And especially when I hit my 20s and I became more reformed in theology um, and I sort of broke away from that, I noticed that in those particular circles that did teach the disease that did teach, um, you know, sin and and the law of God, that people would sort of stay. And so I did sort of see that. Is that something you have noticed, um, particularly in, I guess, modern sort of churches as well, that they kind of have a lot of backsliders still today? Well, they don't have backsliders because they don't slide forward in the first place. We call them backsliders, but they're false converts. Mark, uh, uh, I think, yeah, Mark chapter 4 and um, I think Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the Soren and Luke, and it tells us that the stony ground hearer receives the word with joy and gladness, and at a time of tribulation, temptation, and persecution, he falls away. So they're false converts, but yeah, I saw that a lot, and I saw the methods of modern evangelism, which are very manipulative, 
uh, appealing to the emotions, not preaching the law, not preaching judgment day, not mentioning sin or hell. It's all just, you've got a God-shaped vacuum. Jesus is missing. Come and give your heart to him. Slip your hand up without looking. Come to the front. We'll pray with you, give you follow-up. And it's just a uh, it's modern traditions that have got nothing to do with biblical evangelism. And it's about time we forsook that tradition and went back to what Jesus did and saw that with the rich young ruler, he gave him the Ten Commandments. And see, with Paul in chapter 2 of Romans, he gave the commandments. So when that happens, there's the knowledge of sin. And the, the person doesn't come to have a happier lifestyle. He comes to be made righteous in the sight of a holy God to flee from God's wrath. That's why we need a savior. And the analogy I use in Hell's Best Kept Secret is a parachute. You put a parachute on not to improve your flight, but you put it on for the jump to come. A parachute will just be uncomfortable if you put it on for a happier flight and you want to take it off if the flight gets bumpy. But if you put on the Lord Jesus Christ because you know you have to pass through death and face a holy God, you'll never take that parachute off. You'll never forsake the Savior because he's your very life. So what I do now is I don't teach Hell's Best Kept Secret anymore um, because I've shared it three, 936 times. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 936 times. So I said, never again. So it's all on CD. It's on our website on livingwaters.com. People are going to listen to it. And I'm so thankful for the for uh, for audio tapes. And, and in fact, it's been recorded. So at the bottom of livingwaters.com, you can listen to it free of charge. But I share principles that make evangelism so much easier. So can I share a couple of things? Uh, of course, I would be honored. Please do. Okay. Here are two things that help me when it, when it comes to sharing my faith, and they're based on scripture. Number one is the fact the sinner has a conscience. The word conscience means with knowledge. I know within the heart of every human being, God has taken his law, those 10 commandments, and written, upon the, written it upon the heart. The work of the law is written on the heart, the conscience bearing witness. So that gives me tremendous um, confidence to know this person doesn't need to be convinced of God's existence. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being, being understood by the things that are made. Every time a sinner looks at the sky, the heavens declare the glory of God. But people deny the existence of God because they want to keep their sins. They want to sin without feeling guilty. Like the prodigal son went to a far country so he could spend his money on prostitutes. He didn't want to do that under the nose of his father went to a far country. Atheism is a far country. Atheists believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. Absolutely ludicrous. So what I do, instead of getting into apologetics in any depth, I go for the conscience. I say, you know, it's wrong to lie and steal. So that's one of my confidences. The sinner has a knowledge of sin given to him by those commandments. And that's what I appeal to when I witness to people. The other thing that is very, very helpful is to know the sinner has a will to live. God's written eternity upon the heart of every human being. We're not dogs, cats, horses, or cows. We're made in the image of God, and something in us says, oh, I don't want to die. That's our God-given will to live. In fact, Hebrews 2 verse 15 says, every single human being is haunted by the fear of death all their lifetime. So if you watch our YouTube channel, you'll say to me, you'll, you'll see me say to people again and again, so my brain's a little fried because we just did three hours of podcasts. So my, my mouth is <laughs> stammering a little. Um, you'll hear me say to people, are you afraid of dying? Or do you think there's an afterlife? And when I say to them, are you afraid of death? And someone says, 
Yes, I am, actually. I can see their eyes processing what's going on. They're thinking to themselves, how did this guy know? I haven't told my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my wife, but I am terrified of dying. I don't know what to do. It's getting closer and closer. Every beat of my heart's bringing me closer to this thing called death that nobody talks about. And so I talk about it because I know this person has a will to live. Think of the thief on the cross. That thief railed upon Jesus, and the Bible says he blasphemed him, but then he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What changed this man from being hardened to being open? Well, he may have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He may have seen him willingly give his hands to the nails. We don't know exactly, but we do know this, that that man, as he hung on the cross, was a human being with a will to live. His hands were nailed to the cross. His feet were nailed to the cross. He wasn't going anywhere. He couldn't do anything but wait for death to come. I'm going to digress, and I don't have to explain to you as an Australian what a poached egg is. You know what a poached egg is. Americans say poached egg. It's, what's that? It's like a fried egg, but it's cooked in water. Water. So I say in, with this teaching, I've had poached eggs for breakfast for many years. I love eggs. But one thing that annoys me about a poached egg is the fluff that comes to the top when you're boiling the egg. You have to get a, a, a spatula and scoop off the fluff and put it over here and then do it again a little later. It's annoying. But one time about two years ago, I put the lid on the frying pan and I was amazed to see the egg cooked 10 times quicker and there was no fluff. And it was all because of the pressure the pressure caused there to be no fluff and things happen quickly. Well, think what happened to the thief on the cross. Suddenly he was pressured. He knew he was going to die momentarily. The Romans were going to come and break his legs, is going to suffocate to death and be in eternity standing before God. We know he had a knowledge of sin because he was a thief. He was obviously Jewish. They didn't crucify Romans like they did Jews. So he had a knowledge of sin, and he acknowledged his sinfulness by saying, we are here rightfully. This man has done nothing. And we know that he was being pressured regarding his own death. So when the pressure comes on and you know you're going to die within the hour, it's going to get rid of the fluff. Nothing else is going to matter. It doesn't matter who you're married to. It doesn't matter how much you got in the bank. All that matters is I'm going to die. What should I do? I believe it was the pressure helped him get rid of the fluff so he could turn to Jesus and find out what really matters. This world, because of COVID, have had pressure put on them. Normally, death is a grandma dies, old people die. But what the COVID two years did was show people that death was right around the corner. It put the pressure on them and helped them get rid of the fluff. So when I address someone's will to live, I find I have an open door because of their will to live. Every day, except today because I've been so busy, I go out on my bike with my dog, Sam. There he is there with a sunglasses on. And he helps me get interviews. I go to a local college, just ride through the college, stop, and immediately people say, whoa, I love your dog. How does he keep his sunglasses on? And I say, you got a dog? And I've got friends within seconds because he is my bait when I go fishing for men. I say, do you want to go on camera? And they say, oh, yeah, okay. So now I start off, you're afraid of death. And I know I'm speaking to them because of that fear of death. 
Think of a, a waitress. She's in a restaurant and she looks up and she sees three businessmen come in. They're wearing three-piece suits. They've got little important looking cases. They put them on a desk on the, on the table. She knows they're wheeling and dealing millions of dollars. But what does she do? She just walks straight up without permission. She says, can I take your order? Why is she so bold? Isn't she intimidated by these businessmen? No, she's bold because she knows something. She knows that she has what they want. They're there to eat. So she's bold. And you and I have what this world wants more than anything else. This haunting fear of death. When we bring the gospel to them and say, Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, when they understand the issues and realize what God has done through the Savior, they embrace it with both hands. That's why you and I must be bold, because you and I know we have what they want. They just don't understand it. And the law brings the understanding. This is what Jesus did with the woman at the well in John chapter four. He said, if you knew who it was that was speaking to him, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So you and I have to be bold. We have to address the conscience because we want this person to thirst after righteousness. And the only time they're ever going to do that is when they realize they're in big trouble with God. Hmm. You mentioned, um, you know, you were sort of concerned initially with this sort of approach to evangelism that you'd get, you know, you'd sort of cultivate legalism uh, within um, the gospel and within the church and things like that. And you, you also mentioned that you had the complete opposite. And I found that um, fascinating because so much of what we're being told is don't Bible bash. You know that saying, that old saying, I don't, I'm not sure if it's similar in America, but in Australia, it's like, don't be a Bible basher, Evelyn. Don't bash people over the head with the Bible, you know, and a lot of people take verses like Jeremiah 29 verse 11, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to give you hope in a future, et cetera, et cetera. But they, you know, they say, just, just do those sorts of things. Just, just do that. And then once you get them in, once you get them in, then you can do the other things. Have, have you found that, um, obviously you mentioned you found that's not true at all. Do you find that people get really offended or upset when you talk about the wrath of God or the disease, how we have original sin and how we are sort of depraved by, you know, nature and it's only by God's grace that there's goodness in us and we have the cure? What, what's sort of the response that you get from strangers off the street when, when you do that approach? Very, very good. But there's a key. It's in your tone. If you've got a tone that makes your love evident, it changes everything. I remember years ago, I used to have a building, it was two-story, three-story building. I used to have a drug prevention center. And the Regent Theater, this drug prevention center was in, it was right at the top, uh, caught on fire. And a friend called me before 7 a.m. He woke me. I picked up the phone and this friend just said, Ray, the Regent Theater building is on fire. Now, I did not say, Oh, <laughs> I propose. No, I could tell by his tone that he was deadly serious. Mm. And so your tone matters. If you're talking about God having a wonderful plan, you'll have a sort of a wonderful plan tone. But if you're deeply concerned that you're talking to someone, if they die tonight, they're going to hell, you will have that in your tone. So when I talk to people right from the, the beginning, I'm motivated by a genuine love for them and a sincerity where I'll say, are you afraid of dying? 
It's not like, you're afraid of dying? No. Are you afraid of dying? Like a doctor would talk to someone about a cancerous disease they've got. It's got to be in your tone. And people can detect that. And when you go through the commandments, you don't accuse, you ask questions. How many lies do you think you've told? What does it make you if you've told lots of lies? On judgment day, will you be innocent or guilty? It's called the Socratic method, where Socrates asked questions of his students. And I ask questions. I do what Jesus did, ask questions. And what Paul did, you say you shall not steal, do you steal? You say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And let them do the answering and let their conscience do the work. And you'll find people will say things to you like, I've never heard this put this way before. Thank you for talking to me. Now I understand the issues. I understand why I'm going to die. One of the most powerful truths that I've ever shared is to ask the person if they know what death is. If you don't know what the disease is that you have, you're not going to find a cure. Almost certainly, you've got to be diagnosed before you can find a cure. So I say to people, do you know why we die according to the Bible? And they say, no. I say, it's wages. I say, what? It's very predictable. Like, what do you mean wages? Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Like a judge will say to a heinous criminal who's committed multiple murders and thinks lightly of it, You've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what we're going to pay you. This is what you've, what's due to you. And I say to this person, Eric, your sins are so serious in the eyes of a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. Your death will be evidence that God is deadly serious about sin. That makes the eyes white. That makes the mouth go dry. That makes them say, well, what should I do? It's like the Philippian jailer. You give them their own little personal earthquake. So they say, what must I do to be saved? And so there's nothing wrong with making people tremble. When Paul reasoned with Felix, the Bible says Felix trembled. Why? Because Paul reasoned with him. He didn't condemn him. He reasoned with him and Felix trembled. Jesus said this, fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Let me tell you something that I think you'll identify with. Depends on your age. Um, in New Zealand, when I was there 33 years ago, if there was a naughty criminal, the police would hit them with a stick. They didn't have guns in New Zealand. And same with Australia. Things have certainly changed. Same in England. Uh, but when I came to the U.S., I'd be open air preaching. I was in Hawaii, standing on a trash bin, preaching in Waikiki apologizing to all the people who are lying on the beach and saying, look, this is a dream come true, lying on the beach in Waikiki, and suddenly a preacher gets up in the middle, and it's like a nightmare broken into your dream, but just listen to me for a few moments. <clears throat> and I, I'd preached them, and a police officer waited, and then he approached me, and the, as he began walking towards me, I just said this to myself, he's got a gun. That's all I could see, this gun at his side. I thought he could kill me. And so I've been stopped open air preaching over a dozen times over here. And every time a police officer walks towards me, I say to myself, he's got a gun, any quick movements, and I'm dead. Put my hand in my pocket to give him a quick tract. I'm dead. And I say, yes, sir. Officer, no, sir. Please, sir. What would you like me to do, sir? Want me to move? Absolutely, because he's an officer. So I've got more than a reverence for the police. I've got a fear of what he can do to me. And that's what Jesus was actually saying. Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear 
him. The psalmist says, my, my soul trembles for fear of you. And that's what's missing in many of today's pulpits. There's no fear of God, no causing sinners to tremble. That's why there's so much adultery within the church. You know, I don't look at pornography, not because I don't want to. There's something sinful in me. I don't look at it because I am terrified of the Lord, because I know his eye is in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And I say, thank you, Lord, for the fear of God. It keeps my heart free of sin. Let me share something personal with you about the fear of God. At the age of 16, I was in a dance with a pretty young girl. Her name was, I can't remember her name, probably just as well. Anyway, she's 16, she's real pretty, and we found ourselves out the back of this hall in the dark in long grass lying together. And as a 16-year-old, non-Christian, six years before I was a Christian, my intentions were not honorable, but she said something, five words, that absolutely blew me away as I lay there. She said this, you know what? Her name was Anne-Marie. She said, you know what? God is watching us. What? I, it was like a bucket of ice water fell from the heavens, and I say, hey, let's go back into the dance. And I look back now as a young man before I was a Christian, six years before I was a Christian, the fear of God caused me to depart from sin. Without that fear, I could have got a pregnant. I could have caused an abortion. I could have brought shame to the family, which in those days, it was a shame for a girl to get pregnant out of wedlock. And I look back and say, thank you, Lord, for the fear of God that kept me from sin then. Mm. It drove me from sin to the gospel, and it keeps me from sin now, and that's what's missing from today's pulpit. There's no preaching of the wrath of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the law of God. There's no mention of hell. It's just give your heart to Jesus and he'll make you happy. And he doesn't because all who live God, godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus warned of being hated for his name's sake. You've got the tongue of the world, the flesh, the devil. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see the foundation of the church is soaked in blood. Look at Stephen being stoned. Look at what Nathan said to David when he approached him about his violation of the law. He didn't talk about a wonderful plan. He said, you're the man. And that's what we need to say to sinners in love and in gentleness. Do what Paul did in chapter two of Romans. You who say you shall not steal, do you steal? Take him through the commandments so that they understand the message of the cross. Hmm. I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more, if you don't mind, on the fear of God, because some people, Christians, uh, I don't even think I fully understood what that meant early on in my uh, faith. And um, a lot of people ask me all the time when I say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and, and things like this. And like, what does that actually mean? Why would God want us to be scared of him? Why would a God want that? And so a lot of people confront me with that. And if you don't mind, I'd love it if you could sort of elaborate what the fear of God actually is. Yeah, we've got a huge problem in trying to reach the unsaved world because they are all, including atheists, idolaters. Idolater and idolater is someone who has a wrong concept of God. Take Richard Dawkins, the Pope of uh, atheism. He is very famous for talking about the nature of God in a very wicked way. He's gone through the Old Testament and taken everything about the wrath of God and the judgments of God, and he created this monster that's devoid of any love and mercy. And then he rattles off this monster and says, if that's your God, don't want anything to do with him. No, that God that Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in doesn't exist. He's a figment of his imagination, the place of imagery, shaped a God that he doesn't like, so he can toss him. 
Most people have a wrong concept of God. They see him as this great old man with his finger coming up to touch Adam's finger. That's idolatrous. It's a wrong understanding. Moses said, God, let me see your glory. It's in uh, Exodus. He said, let me see your glory. And God said, you cannot see me and live. In other words, if Moses was in the presence of God, God would kill him. Let me tell you why. Imagine a judge in a court of law has got before him a man who kidnapped two little girls, seven-year-olds, sexually molested them, tortured them, and then strangled them to death. What should the judge's attitude be to the criminal? If he's a good judge, he'll be furious. He'll bring down that gavel in wrath. If he's not angry, he's not a good judge. His anger is a barometer of his goodness. Good judge, really angry. Very good judge, very, very angry. God is so good, he is filled with wrath against every single human being. That's why God said to Moses, you cannot be in my presence or see my glory and live. And then listen to what God said to Moses. I will allow you to look on my goodness. He said, I'll pass by and let my goodness pass you by, but I'll have to hide you in the cleft of a rock because if Moses had been in God's goodness, that goodness would have killed him because that goodness is equivalent to his justice. And the Bible says when Moses came down from the mountain, he could not look at the children of Israel because the children of Israel couldn't look at him because he was shining with God's glory because Moses had looked at where God had been. That's the God we have to face on judgment day. That's the holiness of God. And if we stood in the presence of God as liars and thieves and blasphemers and fornicators, sexual imaginations, anger, selfishness, greed, lust, envy, pride, jealousy, all our sins, God's goodness would spill on us and kill us in an instant. That's why we need to be hid in the cleft of the rock in Jesus. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in you. And that's what a Christian is. We are saved from God's wrath. So we fear God because God is to be feared. And the same reason you should fear electricity. Someone says that you should not put your finger up that light socket. Well, it's light socket's going to kill you by nature. That's just the way it is. And God will kill us if we're in his presence. So the fear of the Lord is something that we should have if we know what is good for us. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, the unregenerate do not fear God in the slightest. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why they use his holy name as a cuss word in place of S-H. They use God's name to express disgust. Your thumb with a hammer, you could say the filth word, or you could say the name of Jesus Christ or the name of God. That shows human nature is devoid of any reverence, any fear of God. And what we've got to do is make them tremble so they run to that cleft, so they hide themselves in Christ before that great and terrible day of the Lord when they'll face that God we spoke about. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great analogy that you that you put there, and um, I I certainly hope and pray that that we can we can do that, and we can show people where the rock is, and you know at least guide them toward that. And, and that's something I wanted to finish on. I'm aware of the time today, but if you have a couple of minutes to spare, maybe for some listeners who haven't 
found the rock and who haven't found Christ. I was hoping you might give me uh, a, a Ray Comfort special, if that's okay, um, and sort of just take a couple of minutes to talk about the gospel itself for people who might not be aware of it and who want to um, learn more well, about it and who are interested. Sure. The way to know that you're a sinner is just, as I said, look at those commandments. If you've lusted even once, you've committed adultery in your heart, in God's eyes. If you hate someone, you're a murderer. If you've lied, the scriptures say lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Taking one thing, you're a thief. You go through those commandments. Maybe you've used God's name in vain. You wouldn't do that with your mother's name, but you've taken the God, the name of the God who gave you life, his holy name, and used it to cast. So if you look at those commandments, they'll show you on judgment, judgment day, you're in big trouble. So what should you do to escape the damnation of hell? You put your faith in the Savior. You and I broke God's law. Jesus came and paid the fine. That's what happened on the cross. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, someone else can pay them and a judge will be satisfied. You say, look, this fine's been paid. You can get out of here. Go on, you're away. And God can take the death sentence off us because Jesus paid the fine in full. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. Then he rose from the dead, defeated death. It was not possible. Death could hold him. And all you have to do to find everlasting life, it's so simple, a child can understand it, is repent. Turn from those sins. Just say, God, forgive me. I'm so sorry for sinning against you. You gave me life and I've used your name as a cuss word. I've lied and stolen and been filled with unlawful sexual desires. Please forgive me. And then trust in Jesus like a trust to parachute. Just call upon the name of the Lord and say, I, I need a savior. I need someone who can wash away my sins. I willfully put my faith in Jesus. And as you do that, repent and trust in him. The Bible says he'll in no wise cast you out. He's able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. And then pick up a Bible and obey what you read. And the scriptures say in John 14, 21, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my father. I too will love him and will reveal myself to him. So the moment you begin your walk with Christ, you'll, be, you'll get a new heart with new desires and you'll suddenly Find the Bible comes alive, the trees will look different, the flowers look different, the sky will look different, because you're different, you're a new creature in Christ, and you'll come to know him whom to know as God, uh, as life eternal. So don't believe me, put your trust in Christ, just believe the gospel, don't put your faith in me, as I said, put your faith in Christ, and, and you'll never be the same, you'll be born again, new heart, new desires. My brain is absolutely fried. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good a good place to end and amen to all that. And I, I hope and pray that people who are listening who don't uh, know Christ as of yet and who are interested to, to reach out in some way or another to someone in your life who does know Christ or, or to any of us. And just to finish off, Ray, where can people follow your work and where can people, if they want to uh, listen to more of your sermons, go? Yeah, um, a YouTube channel, just YouTube, Ray Comfort or <clears throat> Living Waters, 220 million views, or livingwaters.com with a lot of free stuff. Uh, we've got an Australian agent, just click on agencies, there's an agency in Australia, and you can listen to Hell's Best Kept Secret at the bottom of the home homepage on livingwaters.com. Thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to, to go through this with us. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.